Andra moi enna pa musa palutra panhas malapala. And we'll just leave it at that because I, I don't have the next couple of lines in my head Beautiful. like I used to. We're talking about a baby. All right, well, many we'll- wild men. That's what we're talking about here. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Um, and joining us today, we have Dante Atkins, who um, is the communications director, uh, at least for the uh, sh- short-term future, of uh, Representative John Garamendi. Um, he's the California 3rd District representative. Um, Dante was also, he's been a blogger, political uh, activist, and active in California politics for, for a number of years. So welcome to the show, Dante. Thank you, guys. Nice to be here. Yeah, welcome, Dante. We're really uh, glad to have you here. There's no one I could think of that I'd rather have on to talk about the ins and outs of, of Congress, electoral politics, uh, all of the kind of behind-the-scenes action. Uh, I know you've worked on a number of campaigns, and, and you've had a lot of experience uh, doing the dirty work that, that you don't get enough credit for. Yeah, as the Sybil said, I'm too old to live and too young to die. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Um, you have something you want to lead off on, Alexi? Well, sure. I, maybe, Dante, before, uh, before we dive into the current state of things, the current uh, crises and, and whatnot, mm-hmm. um, maybe uh, even you know, tell our listeners a bit more of your experience and, um, and, and what you've been doing the last few years and maybe uh, where, where you're looking ahead. You might be reading the tea leaves, perhaps. Um, that might be a good lead-in. Well, sure. So basically um – I come from the world of California politics, and uh, a lot of my start there, uh, first I got involved with the Howard Dean campaign after leaving academia, um, and uh, my goal since I got started with this entire thing has been to try to make the California, make the Democratic Party more progressive. So that started with uh, some state and local politics back in LA, now trying to do the same thing in Congress. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been interesting because... A lot of the things that were considered, you know, too centrist or too radical to talk about in terms of like what would appeal to a supposedly moderate district like, you know, Medicare for all or any one of these other things that are big on the progressive agenda or financial sector reform, things like that are now things that we can actually legitimately talk about because they have some pretty broad universal appeal. So that's the, that's the fight for this next Congress, I feel, uh, as we move forward with a fresh crop of diverse freshmen, um, in, uh, for, to, that constitute this new democratic majority is, will we yield to the old conventional wisdom that being that trying to play to a purple district means you have to be corporatist or will actually give the people what they want. So that's the new fight ahead. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I mean this, this, I feel like, you know, here, here we are, you know, we're, we're like Democrats in, uh, 1924, you know, and it's like, then they ran, uh, John W Davis or whatever. And who, who got just, uh, stomped flat. Um, and so I thought, you know, what I've always wanted to pick your brain about Dante is kind of the, 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 
little bit of what, what I, you know, what I might think like a sort of s- sympathetic insider perspective in terms of just how Congress operates. You know, so like I'm looking at this Politico article, you know, exasperated Democrats try to rein in ocasio Oh, that'll be a good one. Yeah, we'll have a lot of conversation about this. <laughs> <laughs> and And I guess like, you know, I mean, I read through this and like all of my not being a insider like or really having much experience or knowledge about how congress operates at all uh biases are or you know instincts kind of kick in and it's like oh the party is trying to mobilize to like keep the left down and and um i think almost certainly that's sort of part of the equation but like maybe you could start sort of like read the tea leaves here like like who who is sort of you know behind this type of thing what are they really mad at is it because is it like like one thing i think i see in here a big subtext is they're just like super jealous <laughs> she's like she's like leapfrog to the very front of the pack and everyone's always talking about her all the time and they're sort of pissed about that but like i don't know i don't know uh well uh, there's so much to unpack here um but it, it comes from <laughs> a lot of different things and one of the things is um is a, a fundamentally comfort and pressure. I think that a lot of the uh, for, for the members themselves, because the people who are in line to chair these committees um, are in a position to be able to advance a lot of their own priorities and interests, and be able to take advantage of those positions of power to help their friends, help their networks, uh, build a legacy. All of these things are uh, are important, um, personally and professionally, to them. What I think a lot of people make the mistake of assuming is that, uh, oh, it's the Democratic Party trying to keep out the leftists because that's not – it's not like the Democratic Party as an institution or the DNC or any one of the, these other things has this level of control over anyone or over the people who are the incoming chairs of these committees, right? So – a lot of people see that or like senior Democrats in Congress trying to keep AOC down and then they're like, oh, well, the Democratic Party is evil. And it's like, no, it's not really the Democratic Party because the party itself doesn't have that sort of institutional control. It's just that AOC is creating higher standards for people in terms of public pressure about what actually needs to come out of these committees. Um, and anytime you're making people who aren't used to being uncomfortable – uncomfortable, then you're going to start having some griping. And that's really what this is about right now is the fact that AOC's power base is not accountable to her seniority or the relationships that she has with her congressional colleagues at this point. She's able to be this right, this not just a rising star, but one of the most prominent members of the Democratic caucus after a few weeks, just because of the way she messages, the way she communicates, the platform that she has. Uh, with Twitter Dante, social media, are, are, that just are, makes people uncomfortable. Are you saying? Are you saying people are mad because she can throw her weight around because she has good ideas and popular support rather than just having seniority from being around for a long time? That's exactly <laughs> what it is. That is exactly <laughs> yeah, what it amazing. is. Um, and you know that's sort of the way Congress should operate. And then there's so many other conversations that you can have about that, about you know where her fundraising base comes from compared to where other people's fundraising bases comes from, and the sort of strength that gives her as well. Yeah, but the bottom line is that, you know, a lot of people had to eat a lot of dirt to be able to get the power. They had to be 
in this institution that sort of drains your soul in a lot of ways for the better part of a few <laughs> decades. And AOC is able to throw her weight around and they don't feel she deserves I, to be, but she Dante, can. Dante, I, I sold my soul and all I got for it is this measly mean tweet from a popular candidate. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Congresswoman. Basically. And, and so like there are going to be standards about what comes out of these committees now. And I think that's the main thing is that people are watching in a way that maybe they weren't before. And now that we have the majority for the first time in a long time, we're expected to deliver on that. So is there, is there a certain point where they want to be with the cool kids and kind of get on board? Do you think? Um, I, I am honestly not sure. And a lot of that varies member to member. Um, I just don't think that they, that there's going to be a lot of, positive reception to the idea of a lot of pressure being put on them or having their authority or seniority being taken away uh, in, in a matter of speaking. So, you, you know, you can talk about the Green New Deal conversation and the select committee for that in this as well. Um, you know, it's this, this, this may be a bit heretical. I think that the focus on a Green New Deal select committee is a little bit overblown because it's not like the creation of a select committee is essential to trying to get the legislation done that we want to get done. It really isn't. So it's not like, you know, Green New Deal select committee yeah. or, or highway, right? Um, but it's just a question of whether or not you are taking power out of the hands of the people who already chair these committees to be able to do things the way they want to do them. Ultimately, it's power struggles and people don't really – they're not in the mood to have power struggles with someone who's only been in this institution a couple of weeks. That's really what the bottom line is. So, so correct me if I'm uh, if I, to to summarize here, but correct me if I'm if I'm summarizing in in inappropriately. Like <clears throat> you're saying that you know, because I could imagine, and I have argued many times that that like you know, you see this big groundswell of support, and like about someone like AOC can sort of like. You know, um, in a way, somewhat reminiscent of how, like Trump operates, kind of, you know, uh, obtain, you know, drive a big bunch of dedicated followers and like constantly try to try to boost their engagement with politics, um, and you know, I've said, ah, oh, you know, the. the people need to people need to do that you know people who are already in congress they need to sort of step in front of this thing and like try to like channel it and mm-hmm. what, and and what i'm hearing from you is that democrats institutional democrats who have been in the party for a long time they have a sort of like instinctive resistance to that sort of thinking like they 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 want like sort of just like the way things are to sort of continue to be and like they're sort of sort of like afraid of of wielding power i guess especially in the sort of like bold direction be like yeah we have to like rip the economy up by the roots and like get us a new one that has no fossil fuels what i what i would say is that um obviously the more the more uh, for just from a max weber routinization of charisma and institution building type standpoint the longer an institution has been doing things the way it has done them, the more recalcitrance there's going to be in terms of change, uh, right? And then the other thing to, to, to really think about is that, you know, not everyone is going to be um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She is an extremely yeah. gifted and talented um, political, uh, political figure uh, in terms of her charisma, her 
uh, understanding of policy issues and her method of communicating. Not everyone's going to be that, right? So the question and, is... And her instincts, her political... Don't you think her political instincts are, are just, just off, top Just notch? off the charts. Just absolutely off the charts. Um, you know, people are able to... There are certain people who are able to capture the zeitgeist. Uh, and, and she is it. And, you know, people know that she's it. And also, but like I was saying, not everyone is going to be that, but... Everyone, but people still want to ensure that they've got a uh, power base in some light, right? So if you try to change the way the power base operates to people who are more along the lines of who, who have their power based the way AOC does, then that's sort of a threat as well. Like you're talking about changing, you know, the, the way politics works and also the fact that the way you get things done in Congress um, a lot of the time is through having, you know, positive relationships with your colleagues, doing a lot of wheel greasing, that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, there a lot of relationships are transactional in that regard, too. So it's sort of rocking the boat and challenging an institutional culture that's based off of a more insidery sort of backroom aspect, if you know what I mean. Oh, I think we do. Yeah. I ha- I have a maybe one specific thing about money. Um cuz I, you know, like like occasionally people have suggested the possibility of running for, running for office to to me like mm-hmm. even sometimes as a joke and uh uh you know, every time Every time that happens or somebody else is talking about doing it themselves, I think of this episode of This American Life from a number of years ago where they talk to a bunch of congressmen about what it's like being a congressman and or, you know, congresswoman, as the case may be. And it's just what, you know, at least back in 2012 or whatever, what you did for most of your professional life was you you call rich people and you beg for money. Yes. Day in and day out. That is correct. And it sounds just fucking awful Uh, and and yeah so so basically the way scheduling works in congress a lot of the time is that uh whenever you are not actively doing something else you are um as the phrase goes across the street uh and what that usually means is you're at the dnc headquarters and you are dialing for dollars right um so if you don't have anything else to do it's like so there's the capital and then um, the DNC headquarters is uh, a couple of blocks away, um, a little bit east. And then if you don't have anything else going on, then you are going to be uh, there in the uh, call center uh, that's in the DNC. And you'll have your fundraiser there who works out of there. And you are just going to be dialing for dollars. And that's what you're going to be doing. And this has got to be an exhausting process uh, because when you think about how much you have to raise – especially in a competitive district, you're talking about raising millions upon millions of dollars. And when you think about it, the increments that you have to do that in compared to the amount that you have to raise are still relatively small. So let's take, let's take a look at what, at, at, at the facts and figures that are involved here, right? If you've got to raise two, like a few million dollars, right? And the maximum contribution, even from a pack, mind you, is $5,000. Think about how many different PACs you have to call, or you know, whether that's, you know, labor or whether that's corporate, whether it's interest, doesn't matter. I was, I was told there, I was told there would not be math. I was okay. told there well, would not be yeah, math. Yeah. So, uh, so, so sorry about that. It's not mean, meant to be an SAT problem. 
Um, so, you know, PACs can contribute what they can contribute and individuals can contribute what they can contribute, but you're still in the position of having to raise that amount of money every two years. And then a lot of the time, how much influence you have will be dependent upon how much, how many contributions from your committee, from your campaign that you're able to give to both, you know, transfers to the DCCC, to other party committees, uh, direct contributions to other candidates that your campaign makes, right? Um, so you have to show that you're a team player, right? And so you're constantly doing this and it's got to be exhausting because you're just sucking up to people all day. I wouldn't want to do it. And that's one of the main reasons I wouldn't want to run for office either is because it honestly sounds god-awful to have to spend your day doing that. And AOC doesn't because, you know, she can just send a couple of fundraising emails and do that. Yeah, and right. Plus, in, a, in addition to all that time, uh, from what you, you were telling me, um, actually, but the, the listeners should know both Dante and, and Ryan are, are um, each is a real mensch. I don't know, plural of mensch, menches? That sounds weird. Uh, but they're real, a bunch of real menches because they, they've both Skyped into um, my classes and uh, have edified my classes for me. I'm a bad lefty because I'm expropriating and exploiting their their free labor. But uh, in fact, in fact, I even had Dave Kybe Skype in on the topic of unpaid labor, and he gave, yeah, so he gave me his unpaid labor on that topic. Um, but in any case, Dante mentioned uh, just this last semester that his congressman that that he is the communication director uh, for. At that point, like nine months into the year, something like that, had done 270-something TV spots or something like that. I don't know. Correct me, Dante, on the numbers. It's, but it's it like about, you know, At that point, it was about 160 spots on national TV, yeah. Okay, so but it's like every other day, essentially, yes. something like mm-hmm. that. The numbers work out. To, so but in addition to all the dialing for dollars, you're, you're basically running around doing TV spots or, or other – It it depends on how ambitious you are. And, and, you know, so it's kind of funny to me how a lot of the stereotype, you know, you say, oh, well, you know, members of Congress are lazy. They're only working so and so days a week because like apparently it's only a a, a work day if it's a session day where you're actually voting. And and really, that's not the case. Um, I'll just 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 quite frankly, like my boss is uh, an extremely hard worker um because he's always doing something uh whether that's you know promoting his his causes and democratic messaging and you know national media or whether that's fundraising or whether that's attending events or doing his own or doing district representational events because ultimately that's the job is representing people and hearing their concerns there's always something going on. Uh, being a con- If you're in a safe district and you're just content to be a backbencher, then sure, you can just sit on your butt if that's what you feel like doing um, and just like getting re- reelected and hope you don't get a primary challenge. Um, but if you want to actually get something done, it actually does take quite a bit of work. Um, and uh, it's just a question of how much work you're willing to put in because that's how much work you're going to get out of it. Yeah, yeah. So, so I guess just, you know, from a, from a, characterological standpoint putting myself in the shoes of you know maybe 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 not like your median democratic member of congress not not like the the worst blue dog or you know that the dennis kucinich whoever that is today but 
you know, just someone who's like trying to trying to do a good job. And you're like, you know, I I would not be that that uh, you know charismatic of a candidate certainly, but you know, you're sort of putting your time in. It's like, oh, maybe in ten years I could aim for a senate seat or something like that. I'm trying to push like a couple of bills now and then, and I'm spending half my waking life on my hands and knees begging from the the every ski do dealership in my district, like, please give me a hundred bucks, God help me. <laughs> yes. And then here comes here comes this like incredibly attractive woman who just like swoops in. She 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 can raise infinite dollars, and she doesn't have to. Do, she gets to just live, you know, and actually do the things that I want to do, or maybe like work on the things that I find interesting, even if maybe we don't agree. See eye to eye, like I would be fucking pissed. I would be green with envy, you know, to just think like, ah, why can't that be me, you know? But it's like, but why can't? Could- but Ryan, why couldn't you say, how about I buddy up with her and get her to campaign for me so that I don't have to go groveling to the hundred dollar donors? Actually, she gets the hundred dollar donations, but like, right, that well, may be where it goes. I suppose. I, I think, uh, well, and and there is you know something to something to the idea that um, you know one of the things, and this was something that AOC denied, uh, but there was an article that appears to have falsely reported that um, she was targeting Hakeem Jeffries um, for a primary challenge, and I think that's also something that is um, that is. That could be underlying this is people might feel that unless they're able to deliver or or or, or willing to tow her line, that she could theoretically recruit someone and then fund someone uh, to issue a primary challenge if they don't if she doesn't think that they're good enough on the issues. Um, so so that's probably you know another one of these another one of these things where. A lot of people who have been in leadership positions or, or, or higher up in the seniority aspect are thinking, oh, this is not someone who's going to go along to get along and play nice because she's not accountable to the same rules. So I think you're, you're, you're dealing with a lot of different things. You're dealing with, um, with the, uh, with, uh, like jealousy, perhaps a little bit of envy regarding the fundraising things, someone coming along and, you know, busting up the institution, making them a little bit uncomfortable, and also the ultimate threat, which is the possibility of a primary challenge to people. So you roll all those into one, and then you're going to have things like this Politico article where um, there's a little bit of griping going on. And I don't think that's helpful either, because uh, from a communication standpoint, if you're griping about the most seemingly the most popular democratic politician we have in Congress, you're probably going to end up on the wrong side of the Twitter ratio. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and look, you know, she's so popular that she's either going to change them um, or, or that they're, you know, look, there are skeptics from the left, uh, a lot of leftists that just don't like electoral politics at all because they think it's naturally corrupting. And they just thought, look, she's running as a Democrat. Uh, these are probably the same people that, that may or may not have said the same thing about Bernie um, being a Democrat. Uh, so you get hit from both sides. It's like you're not a real Democrat, you're a lefty, or you're not lefty enough, you're a Democrat, right? Well, and, um, and this and is so, a you know, fascinating it's like, topic. Fascinating. Sorry, I'll let you finish. Um, but yeah, yeah. So, so, so people like like uh, Bernie and AOC get hit from both sides for 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 that interesting reason, right? It's like, is she just going to be uh, another Democrat, and and they're going to teach her as as her what was it? Her objections to the to the initial uh, training at Harvard. Uh, who somebody who said about her, ah, oh, she needs she's going to learn her lesson real quick or something like that. She doesn't know how it works here, right? Like so so either the le- the the far lefties are correct that she's just going to be. Uh, 
browbeaten into doing it the tried and true way where you wait your turn and, 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 and all that. Or she will actually change and, and, and try to push forward a movement to do things differently. Well, right? and, and I'm hoping, obviously, that it is um, that it is the latter, that she will change the institution. Uh, because the things that she was talking about over orientation, these were things I didn't know. Um, that they don't get widely publicized. Like who's doing this? Who's do giving the trainings at, at, at orientation? Is there enough representation of labor as opposed to just people who come from the financial services industry or corporate CEOs? I didn't know that. That was an eye opener to me and an eye opener to a lot of other people regarding who is just naturally viewed as the default people who get to train new members of Congress on how to do their jobs. Right. So that was that was an interesting thing. Um, and, and yeah, I think that the next time there, if them, if Dems keep the house in 2020, you can bet, you can bet that because of the complaints that she brought, orientation is going to be a little bit different next time than it was this time. And leadership is going to make sure that there is a better voice for labor at the table, uh, and, uh, and advocacy groups and that sort of thing, as opposed to, you know, corporate CEOs being the only people who get to tell new members of Congress what's what. Um, regarding, you know, party institutions, you were talking about, you know, Bernie getting it from Democrats for not being a Democrat and AOC getting it from Bernie people, et cetera, for being a non-Democrat or for, for being a Democrat. That's a fascinating topic. Um, you know, I was just having a couple of days ago, I was having a Twitter conversation on this issue with Saikot, uh, Chakrabarti, who's, um, former head of justice Dems and now AOC's chief of staff. It was just, he and I had a Twitter conversation about this exact issue, um, where, you know, I was saying that it wasn't exactly correct to say that, you know, the, de and it was in response to this Politico article, I think, right? That it wasn't exactly correct to say that the Democratic Party is trying to put AOC down because look, I mean, that casts this movement, the movement that AOC is a part of and all of this, as something that's outside the Democratic Party as opposed to within it. And then when you do that, when you message it that way, what you're saying is that we're not part of this party, that the party is run by all of these other people, you know, the people, the centrists or corporatists or whatever, and that we're based, when you do that, though, you're affirming the consequent, because what this has been about for a long time is the soul of the Democratic Party. Who's going to own this party, right? And so, like, we don't, we shouldn't be ceding that, right? We shouldn't be ceding that to anyone. Um, and that's why I love what AOC is doing is because, like, I view AOC and the way she communicates and her ethos as sort of like the soul of what the Democratic Party is about, right? But it is interesting, and I'm sorry I'm rambling a little bit, but it is interesting because it puts the people who want a, uh, a a third party, like a left party, in an interesting position because if people like AOC are representative of the Democratic Party, then it puts the – it sort of lessens the incentive or the mobilization to be able to build a third party if it looks like people in the AOC camp and, and her ilk, which is very uniting across – both sort of the Bernie and the Clinton left, by the way, if it, if, if it looks like that version of the Democratic Party is going to head up this institution, then there are going to be, there's going to be a lot less incentive for a third party on the left. So that's also going to be something to watch for going forward, how that movement manifests itself if the Democratic Party keeps on moving this way. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I guess, you know, I'm, I uh I have sort of two thoughts on on that, you know. Um 
you look at that at uh, the history of third parties in the United States, and sometimes I, I think you know back in the day, especially when things were were a little bit more loose jointed in terms of the you know when when political parties were really just sort of patronage machines and had like almost no ideological content. Sure, um, it's like how the 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 populist party and the uh, the who was a uh, Bob LaFollette's party the the um, progressive party or, or the the f- f- farm labor party, whatever, uh, um, you know, like like you can certainly trace like the development of good ideas from that that's that sort of uh, mobilization. But as a sort of like the the two party system has become pretty solidified, sure. and and where you 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 know you do sort of if you're thinking tactically, you know you have to worry about spoiler effects. And also the the amount of resources that third parties have to sink in to just get on the ballot in 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 you know all the various states, um, and the fact that like you know lefties complain about uh, the the you know the Democratic Party being biased against them, and I think there's definitely something to that. Yeah, there's a lot you know, of historical like, evidence for that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But I think they also, you know, you, you, they, they characterize it as like a parliamentary party where there's like a leadership and the leadership has tons and tons of power um, where it's like it's really it's not as it, it's like more of a kind of social club. Like it, like it kind of I remember people pointing out, oh, there's so many Democrats in like the Bronx. You know, it's like there's more Democrats in the Bronx than there are members of DSA in the entire country. And um by like you know an order of magnitude probably, but that just sort of goes to show you that like the Democratic Party is not a parliamentary party. No, it's not. You know, and it, it doesn't exist for 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 most people in terms of like being a center of like going to do Democratic Party stuff like on a regular basis. It's like you just vote and that's it. Right, and that's and that's I, you're right. You're exactly right, and that's the way it is for most people. Right, is like you're you you view yourself as loosely affiliated in some way unless you're a diehard activist right you view yourself as loosely yeah. affiliated with you know democratic values like working class values lgbt values support for minorities that sort of thing and that's why people who are democrats are democrats right um yeah. but i think you know uh, a lot of people on the left sort of have this view of the dnc as this iron-fisted controlling institution and that is not really the way the DNC works <laughs> and it doesn't have that sort of control over, you know, democratic candidates, democratic campaigns. There's, there's this idea that there's a lot of rigid enforcement from the top and there really isn't that much. Um, and so that's, that's one of the things that I wish people understood more um, is, is that, but, you know, regarding uh, two party duality, I mean, you either figure out a way to overcome Duverger's law or you don't, um, right? And Duverger's yeah. law is the stipulation that in, um, you know, winner take all uh, majority or plurality elections, uh, if you have a system like that, eventually you're going to coalesce around two parties because of the spoiler effect you're talking about, right? And so 
Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're if you're still advocating for a third party, where you actually have to start is the fun is fundamental electoral reforms to be able to overcome Duverger's law. And so, like, I'm interested to see what happens in Maine because Maine has actually done the instant runoff voting thing, right? And instant runoff voting is one of the things that can overcome Duverger's law, right? So I'm curious to see what builds up around the left in Maine right now uh, to see if there are any fundamental changes that come out of um, the the change from absolute plurality to something that might welcome more third parties into the process. You've got to start someplace. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I guess just to sort of like maybe close this out, you know, I think that the, what AOC really demonstrates, it's like she, she took, uh, what was his name? Crowley, Joe Crowley. That was number, number three Democrat in the house in uh you know p- part of the Cuomo machine in one of the most corrupt uh machine states in the country and she just picked him off by like 15 points um you know uh despite having this just like preposterously rigged you know i think she was outspent 10 to 1 and so like you know what what the the, the sort of leadership, you know, the sort of Chuck Schumer, Obama, um, you know, s- centrist type of leadership apparatus, insofar as there is such a thing, what it relies on to maintain itself is that most people aren't paying attention and not participating. They're not challenging them in any sort of systematic way. And if you have someone like AOC come up, she can just like snap, snap off the number three person in the house without really breaking a sweat. Well, it's not impossible. No, it's not. And 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 what I would say about that, you know, is that um, it, it was a low turnout primary, which meant that every single person who could be organized uh, or that AOC's campaign was able to organize, people who don't usually participate in these processes, every single person that participated in that way uh, was that much more amplified than they would have been in a normal primary. And that's one of the interesting things uh, and, 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 and a double-edged sword about the way that, you know, New York has done this because New York has extremely ridiculous voter registration deadlines for primaries. Uh, and they don't do all that well in terms of actually letting the democratic process play out, right? And it's, it's designed yeah. to depress turnout in primaries. That's the entire design of the system. But, the flip side of that is if you're actually willing to do the work to be able to organize people and you're able to inspire people that way, it doesn't take all that many people to be able to significantly change a primary when you've designed it to be low turnout through artificial barriers. So that's sort of a flip side of this equation. Yeah. Although I think even in a high turnout, uh, the re-election, she's going to wipe the floor with whoever attempts to run against her pretty easily. I'd say, right? No one, no one will dare. I don't think, or at least no one's serious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like you know, you right. had this this thing where it's like, oh, the could the establishment ch- or could Joe Crowley or cha- challenge Ocasio Cortez? And it's not. There's no no amount of money in the world is going to be able to beat her in a primary challenge at this point, right? Because of how much she would be able to raise and muster, and how much support she has. Um, nationwide. And plus, once you're the incumbent, it's very, very difficult for people to realistically say that you should be primary challenged when the entire ethos of like not primary challenging people is what 
you've been based on for so long, right? It's like, once you're in, you're in. And that means that you're, you know, it's your party now. You're the captain now, right? So yeah, they, there you go. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so sometimes the incumbency advantage works to the left's uh, benefit. Right, so, right. Uh, and we'll, then we'll, and we'll take it when we yeah, can. Yeah, take it when you can and then run with it. Because if you're the incumbent, then you can help other people become incumbents. And that's something I'm super excited about with this new Congress is that so many of these young progressive women of color are all going to be growing up and going through this system together and supporting each other and reinforcing each other and then coming to the assistance of candidates who can follow in their footsteps in subsequent generations. And once you start that process, it just mushrooms and grows. And that's what I'm super excited about is that we're going to have a legit cultural change in this institution and it badly needs it. Right. Yeah. And I noticed that like both Trump and these young women of color who are uh, inspirational and sadly they're inspirational in a way that isn't working out for maybe uh, Beto and Elizabeth Warren on the Instagram as quite as well. But, uh, you know, <laughs> you, you can you can try to use the same tools and, and methods. But uh, if, it, if it's not authentic or if you're not uh, naturally predisposed to communicating with people in that way, it doesn't work as well. But uh, the point I was going to make about Trump is that like. He has a kind of transparency in a way, but it's just the transparency of like literally dumping his thoughts onto Twitter uh, in like a basically continuous basis. So what the transparency is, is to his rambling and inane, inane kind of musings and, and theater, whereas um, AOC and, and, and her uh, fellow Congress people are kind of trying to actually make representative government transparent and trying to make policy and politics something that in this system, as difficult as it is, accessible to the, the actual populace so that they have, you know, I guess Trump tries to do this in a really misleading and uh, demagogic way as well, right? He does tweet about the whether it's the wall or whatever it is. He tries to, in his own way, co-opt what his base should think and, and support him on. But uh, I guess that's that's the difference in substance and content. But but in form, there there does seem to be this parallel um, that strikes me as why lots of people are interested in in politics in ways that they aren't by just you know Joe Congressman. Well, right? I mean, so so Trump is and he's transparent in the same way that your drunk racist uncle is transparent. Um, you know, he will, he'll be, he'll be lying on the couch watching football or whatever it is. Uh, and he will just say the first thought that comes to his head, regardless of the social propriety of the situation. Right. So yes, I guess, I guess that's one way of being unfiltered. Um, but what people love about, uh, AOC so much and, um, a lot of the other, uh, freshmen, uh, progressive women, especially women of color, are following in this, these footsteps. Is they actually communicate like normal human beings, um, which <laughs> which is, which is fascinating because like so much of the work we do, especially in communications for Congress, is about trying to craft messages and hone messages and you know use the perfect words and all this other stuff. And and what you lose in that, like people can in, inherently tell the difference between someone just speaking authentically, saying something they believe, and a carefully crafted and honed message. Like, one sounds like you're an actual human being, and the other sounds like you got fed lines to play into a loudspeaker, right? And as someone whose job it is to feed lines to play into a loudspeaker, I know the difference. Uh, and I think people, most people know yeah. the difference as well. So it's the authenticity thing, right? And between someone who spends all their time, you know being 
a, a what's almost sounds like I don't know. It's like drug-addled rantings on Twitter and someone who's actually saying, hey, this isn't right and we should do things different. Like, you know, what AOC just did with, you know, saying that maybe maybe news media organizations that cover presidential candidates maybe should actually have a black person doing the work, right? There is an authenticity gap here. And yeah, Trump is authentic. AOC is authentic. But AOC also isn't crazy. Yeah. So we've got an advantage there. Two ingredients. well, and I don't even think Trump's, Trump's authentic because I don't think there's there's a there there, if you know what I mean, right? I think I think he's transparent and he's extemporaneous, and, and, but like, it, you know, Alan Watts has this great uh, phrase, "How to be a genuine fake," and, and yeah. it's it's a play on the fact that uh, the word person, right, the Latin persona, uh, it, it references the mask in theater, the per, you know, through and sona sure. sound. The sound comes through the through the mask. And so the person is the mask you wear, and so it's it's and so to be a a genuine person is to be a genuine fake, right? It's it's a contradiction, and so so like I, I think uh, Trump is just all masks. He just puts on different masks, and there's no there there. Um, but there's there's true authenticity in in um, these inspirational um, you know upstarts and, and and so forth, and that's something that um, kind of moves people uh, affectively. Um, in a way that is uplifting and positive rather than kind of like inward turning and, and, and playing on, on anger and festering uh, oh, you know, sure. frustration and hate. From a, um, from a, from, from a uh, experiential and communication standpoint, I, 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 like you can be an authentic sociopath. Like, like that doesn't mean you're not lying all the time, but it means that you genuinely yeah. like that's, that's where you're at. Right. And that's what you do. Yeah. Um, I, I grew up with one, so I can speak from some personal experience about that. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's about with, with, you know, AOC and some of these other, uh, some of these other uh, freshman members that we've been talking about here. Um, it's about authentically communicating things that people care about in terms of their hopes and their aspirations and their representation and making, making, making their constituents and the people who value them feel represented, heard, et cetera. And Trump does that with, you know, people who really want a border wall because they're afraid of Mexicans. So those people feel represented. But my confidence is that there are more people who feel represented by having these diverse voices in Congress than there are people who feel represented by by someone finally being unvarnished saying that Mexicans are rapists. That's my hope. And if I'm wrong, then I fear for the country's future. Yeah. So, so what do you think about this this uh, shutdown? And this probably is part of a, a larger discussion on whether Trump is a genius politically. His political instincts are amazing. He's phenomenal. He's just right. Uh, I, I will say that the people that love him really love him. It's kind of like one of the reasons the NRA, besides money, is so powerful. Is that like it's not that there are more people who favor. Um, gun rights than gun control. It's just the people that love guns really love guns. It's like their number one issue by like a million, right? And people that are for gun control, it's like one of many important things to do, right? So the intensity factor is there. And I feel like Trump's base is not numerous, but is intense. Uh, yes. uh, and then there's the, the people, right? And so so there's that. But in terms of like how many people are very supportive of him or 
he's a Republican. I think that's my interest. I'll vote for a Republican, right? So what's your overall sense? And you can use maybe the shutdown as a microcosm if you want, or just talk about the shutdown, but like about his political maneuvering such that it is and his instincts. I think that is the culmination of something we've been seeing on the right for a long time, which is as the country gets more and more diverse and as society gets more and more liberal, the Republican play has been to try to drive up even more fervor among their base. Um, and uh, that's that's the strategy they've been using for a little while now, what I've called the Breitbartization of the Republican Party. Um, and the, what you're seeing with the wall and the shutdown fight is sort of the quintessence of that, because every single polling indicator shows that this is not a winning issue. Most people don't support the wall. Most people don't support the shutdown. Most people blame Trump and the GOP Congress for the shutdown. Uh, so it's not a winning issue. But they don't have a choice but to do it because they uh, all their fortunes rely on maintaining this base and not disappointing them. They've driven up expectations so high f- among their base that if they let it go now, they know it's going to be dispiriting. If they've sold their soul for the wall and they don't even get that, then who is going to support them? And so Trump is in a bind of his own making where maintaining this is going to be increasingly unpopular, but not doing it breaks his base. And he knows that. So I'm not sure what I would do if I were in his position. And I'm not sure what I would do if I were a GOP strategist because it's it's a double bind. And that's the problem they're in right now. They're outnumbered, but they also can't afford to lose their base. What do you do? Hmm. Well, the latest I hear from uh, the gossip is that Trump will declare a a national emergency to build the wall, but then he'll keep the shutdown going anyway, so that he doesn't give the Democrats a win. Well, so what I think that they're what what, if if it were me, if I were in Trump's position. Um, and I haven't left the White House in months, despite having just gone to Germany, Afghanistan, uh, and, uh, and McAllen, Texas. And, but keep in mind, I haven't left the White House in months. And it's beautiful out there with the snow falling, but I wish you could see it, but I'm also not going to take a picture of it. Anyway, I, I digress. Um, what, what I would do, honestly, is I would declare a national emergency. I would uh, sign legislation uh, reopening the government. And I would campaign on the idea that this is a national emergency and the Democrat-packed courts aren't letting me do what I need to do to keep the country safe. Basically, the only option out of this is to go full-on authoritarian and try to blame democracy itself for not pleasing your base. Yeah. It's definitely in his wheelhouse, and, and it definitely comports with the general GOP strategy of not just gerrymandering, but voter suppression. And that goes well with your point about if you're losing the numbers in terms of demographics and diversity, at least have an entrenched, intense base that you can uh, restrict the vote of everyone else but them as much as possible right, which, so that they, they can still which win. Is, course, which, right? is, which is what they're trying to do, and that's what you see all the time, like with um – uh, you know, Ron DeSantis is now trying to slow play Amendment 4, for instance, the initiative to give all 1.4 million felons uh, who were previously dis- disenfranchised the right to vote. They just keep on trying to do this, try to eat away at the margins. And that can work to a point. 
but there comes a point where it's not going to work, and one has to wonder if the 2018 election was the first harbinger of the fact that the numbers just aren't there for these guys anymore. Um, and we'll find out more about that in 2020, regardless of who the Democratic nominee is. Um, but, you know, we... I, who knows how this is going to go? We could see a realignment. We could see this being the election that says, yeah, white male conservatives no longer have the share of the vote they need overall in this country to be able to defeat everyone else. Um, I, I really, mm. it, my, my personal belief is that 2018 was that watershed election whereby the demographics just stopped working for these guys. Um, and that's honestly where I think we're at right now. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I, uh, I mean, I'll change gears a little bit unless, uh, unless you got something to follow up on. There, uh, no, Alexi. I'm, 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 I'm easy. Okay. I, my, my last thought on that, Ryan, just real quick is that like, I wonder if Trump is as dumb as he is, is smart enough. If he realizes like a cornered rat, that he's losing and that the future of even his movement among the GOP is losing. If he won't realize that he can give in even more to his authoritarian instincts and try to do as much fascistic shit as possible. Uh, he's just so damn incompetent that maybe, you know, he, he won't pull it off. But that's the, my, my only fear is this notion that Corey Robin has is, I think, correct in some ways that the GOP is very weak in a sense. And Trump is the apotheosis of that. But that doesn't mean that a weak cornered animal won't try to do whatever it can to survive right yeah but the question is like what powers do you ultimately have to do that ultimately you've got to try to convince people in some way and you can either decide to like pull a um uh to uh, to pull an andrew jackson and say the supreme court has made its decision now let's see them enforce it um, or you're going to try to message around the fact that you can't do what you want to do. But if you're not doing what you said you would do and you're not getting anything done that your base wants, regardless of whether you message on why, you're still not keeping anybody happy. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember. Do you guys remember when we were worried for like a second if like uh, when the court struck down his um, – Muslim ban if there was going to be a confrontation between like ICE and the marshals yeah, and he decided not to go through with that but you never know but he, he right. could right I mean, he you could. never know you never know whether he's going to say okay the Supreme Court made his decision let's see them enforce it right and yeah will he do a constitutional crisis to try to keep power maybe and let's wait and see what happens on that come you know 2020 as the election rolls near if he's got to try to do something to change the dynamic but yeah so Ryan what uh, what do you got for us now um, I, I wanted to ask more about the, uh, the kind of like internal, um, power dynamics and structures of the, uh, of, of Congress. Sure. And, you know, so like the, the committee assignments have come down, right? Right. And the, 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 the lefties, I think sort of mostly got, got beat on, uh, on the, it seems as though you know, in terms of like the the big power committees, you know, it wasn't a total a total route, but they didn't get uh, most of the like the ways and means stuff they were asking for. Um, I guess maybe just like how how uh, it appears as though you know, there's a certain like machinery in Congress, right? There's a, there's like the levers of power, sure, and. Um, 
it seems to me as though the the left has is is very unfamiliar with where those are and how to sort of like jockey for position and um that i think maybe sort of like as a consequence of just being out of power for so long that there are a lot like folks are a lot more it's much easier to just be like oh we were you know they they uh you know the the centrists kind of they they uh they 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 cheated you know the it's like how you know bernie bernie was cheated out of by the dnc and it was like you know maybe they sort of like sh- like shaded things a little bit here and there but like it seems to me at the end of the day he just got beat right um and i think similarly you know with the the mechanisms of power i feel like you know committee assignments uh you know the chairmanships like like how does that work are people making good play for it? Well, or maybe they're getting better. I mean, I so so the fact that we're even talking about this is a step in the right direction, right? Because under normal circumstances, so the way these things are decided, like who gets seats on appropriations, who gets seats on ways and means, etc. There's there are two different components that play in, or three, I should say. Uh, one is um, one is a seniority component. That's obvious. One is a geographic component. Right. So you want to make sure. So when you're dealing with appropriations, for instance, trying to get a seat on the appropriations committee um, in general, I mean, this is not like an iron, uh, you know, like an ironclad rule of Congress. Right. But in general, um, the House districts and states and one are divided into different subregions. Right. Um, The way the Democratic caucus has done it. And you want to make sure that leadership wants to make sure that they have representatives from each region on the committee, right? So there's a geographic component to that too. And then, of course, there's going to be a, um, a diversity component because we're going to want to make sure, because we care about this sort of thing, uh, that our committees are as representative of, um, of our, uh, of our, of our electoral composition as we possibly can and of our membership. Right. So all of these things are factors in terms of who gets these committee assignments. So basically what you're dealing with in terms of, you know, the ways and means seat, right, is it is this was, I think, widely viewed as like, oh, who's going to get it? And that's going to be a dynamic between Swatsi and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the Ways and Means Committee. Right. And the reason you had that determination is because, well, Ways and Means is going to get a seat from the New York delegation. So who's going to take that seat, right? And so the fact that we were talking, even talking about ideology as an axis of differentiation for these seats is a step in the right direction. Because under normal circumstances, there would be no way that a freshman lawmaker would be considered here um, as in opposition to someone who had been around a lot longer as a differentiation point. Right. So we've added that to the public discussion regarding who gets these seats when it really wasn't a topic of discussion before. Um, but it's not like, um, and again, I want to reemphasize. So it's like, okay, so, uh, AOC doesn't get the ways and means seat. Right. But that doesn't mean that Pelosi intentionally stiffed, uh, progressives to be able to put moderate on or whatever else it is that people were saying. Reason being is that it would have required upending the way things have always been done and the way these committee assignments have always been, have, have always been given in order specifically to put a progressive on the seat as opposed to someone who, 
would have been more considered for it some other way, right? So again, it's not like, oh, progressives got cheated here. It is progressives were not given special consideration in this dynamic this way, right? Which doesn't mean that people can be, can't be disappointed that it didn't happen, but it's also important to weigh the, to, to understand what, what, what the ask was in the context of the history of the institution. And I feel that's an important point. Yeah, Dante, it reminds me uh, about the structural nature of the critique of capitalism properly understood, right? It's, we just got deep here, this. okay. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, well, it's, it's not some rich dude's fault, right, that uh, he or she is exploiting labor. He or she is part, a cog in the machine, right? Like, in, in the same way that you can't change the system by, like, that one rich dude becoming a monk or something you, you can't change like you're saying here it's not a kind of conspiracy where the agency is in just pelosi and she's kind of the puppet master or something the same way capitalism is a structure that operates like you said this is the way things are done in this interconnected structural way so there's no one person's decision it's just that the way that the system functions produces these results unless you have dramatic restructuring of how things exactly. are exactly right exactly. so like well, um, and, and yeah throughout so my my career as a democratic activist and as much as one can call it a career because so often you're just never paid to do this. Um, what I've been focused on is the way institutions work on a structural basis and the way you can take a look at institutions, especially with regard to the Democratic Party, Democratic caucuses, things like that, and say, how can we rewrite the rules of this to be a more effective force, to be a more representational force, to be a more progressive force? Um, and the way that committee assignments are doled out might be one of these things that we take a look at, especially in terms of, say, you know, making sure that you have more freshman representatives or making sure that you have members from the various ideological caucuses or things like that on there, right? Because, you know, let's take a look at where the CPC is these days. The CPC has 90 members now, is that correct? Progressive Caucus? That's pretty much a record. And the CPC deserves to be able to flex its muscles. So what for, and so one of the things, the approaches that I would take is, what are we doing as progressives to make sure that there's some institutional lever of control whereby the CPC is going to have representation on these committees, regardless of whether that's at the senior level or at the freshman level? So these are the types of structural questions that we should be taking a look at, rather than placing our hopes and expectations in the in one particular situation, in one particular savior, because we're not going to be able to count on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the Ways and Means Committee to be our savior to ensure that we have higher marginal tax rates in Medicare for all, right? We're going to have to build progressive power institutionally into this process, and that's what we're not taking a look at enough, I think. And CPC is a Congressional Progressive so I just I have just one more question. Um, you know, in in line with that, uh, you know, what you're talking about there, like su suppose that you are, uh, you know, you you're down there at a strategy session with like all the the sort of like, you know, progressives and leftists and in in the in the Congress and maybe you know like the head of the nurses union and uh you know some of the other like like heavy hitters insofar as there are any heavy hitters on the left and 
what would be your strategy for how you know lefty members of Congress should should play, like, you know, sh- should sort of like burrow into this thing um, and try try to like steer it in a direction away from the climate iceberg, so to speak. Um, Wow, there's so much, um, but uh, that is that is <laughs> just that's just that, that's not a not a simple question at all. Uh, Fix America, Dante. Yeah, well, one of the first things that you've got to do is you got to make sure everyone's on the same page, and you've got to be consistent and focused on messaging, uh, both internally and externally. So everyone needs to be on the same page, fighting the same fights, advocating for the same things. And when you do media, you've got to be making sure you're presenting that case to the American public, and when you're presenting that your agenda and closed doors, you've got to be doing that too. Obviously, um, you know, you've got to be real, working really hard to co-sponsor good legislation, uh, for one. And then you've got to make sure that everyone is on the same page drafting, drafting these bills. If we're talking about climate specifically, for instance, drafting these bills, introducing yeah. them in all of the various committees, amplifying each other's messaging on these things, because, you know, you face it, right? Like, Mitch McConnell's Senate ain't going to be taking this stuff up for the next two years. Um, so this no. is really – with a Republican president and a Republican Senate, what we're really doing here at this point is we're not going to be able to pass a Green New Deal over the next two years. So this is going to be a refinement process for messaging, for advocacy, for trying to determine what these things are going to look like and for also trying to make sure that we have a concrete agenda in terms of specific policy proposals uh, for both members of Congress and future candidates who are running in 2020 to be able to sign up on. This is really a power-building exercise because we still only control one of the three uh, lawmaking branches in this government, right? And so it's mm-hmm. a lot of the focus is going to be us doing what we are trying to do internally to be able to figure out what we're even about. And we got to start there before we start talking about actually – you know, getting bills signed into law because there's no way President Trump's going to do that. So, what are we here to do over the next two years? Yeah. Um, well, any last comments, Alexi? Any last questions, Alexi? No, I'll let uh, Dante have the last word if he wants to say anything else. Uh, I really appreciate all that. That's a nice little summary of where we're at and what. What we hope to inspire and, and, and win in the future. Well, I've probably talked too much as it is, but it's a really exciting time. Uh, just like walking down the halls of the Capitol, walking in Rayburn, seeing a lot of new faces. You know, there's there's a there's a different energy here now in this place. Um, and my my main hope and dream is that this is actually the beginning of something new and that we don't squander it. Because I think in 2006, we got a lot of good stuff done, but we also kind of ended up squandering a little bit. And I'm just really hoping we don't do that because I'm really excited about the people that we got. And I think it's going to be the base. What we just elected in 2018, the people who I feel are going to be the base of democratic power for the next couple of decades. And that's super exciting to watch and to be on the ground floor of. Amen, brother. Yeah. Maybe one last question. If if uh, if you're moving on from uh, where you're at now, what would be your dream position? <laughs> oh, man. Well, um, I have no idea what's going to happen with this, but uh, I did apply to be the communications director for the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Uh, which would be a if which would just be a job that would make you drop on the floor and die of excitement. Uh, so we'll see what happens with that. Um, I, I I I can't lie. That's where I'm most excited about. 
in terms of the direction that we're going because we've got 90 members now. It's the biggest we've ever been. This is where the excitement is, is with the members of the Progressive Caucus um, and helping craft the messaging for that and doing all of that would be a perfect job. So we'll see what happens with that. Obviously, I bet everybody and their mother is uh, is going to be applying for that position. Uh, so who knows? But that's what I would be super excited to do. Uh- are are you allowed to apply with uh, with with a, with a parent? That that seems like a, an advantage to be able to to apply with your mother. Uh, I, 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 I I don't know. Like maybe <laughs> maybe that's a proper way to do things no, that, in immigration court, but not a proper way to do things this in a job a, application. No, I'll tell you what. That's what you do at a <laughs> oh, legacy institution in college. That works. That works. That's for, right. Exactly. That works right. for Harvard, but it probably doesn't work for that's Congress. That's right. That's right. That's right. Jared Kushner. Uh, so appreciate that, my friend. Best of luck to you. They would be very lucky and fortunate to have your expertise, your energy, your, your talent. And uh, can you leave us with a uh, little ancient Greek since you're also a classicist? little ancient okay, Greek. Okay, so uh, we'll just uh, do the, um, the first line from, uh, from the Odyssey because why not? And that would be... And we'll just leave it at that because I I don't have the next couple of lines in my head like I used to. We're talking about many wild men. That's what we're talking about here. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we're going to have to lead with that one, I think. All right. Well, we'd love to have you back on sometime, Dante. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you guys for hosting. Yeah. Yeah. Take it easy. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, We really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going.